from Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Dan Hesse of Sprint. I remember the very first day um, I, I get on the company plane uh, to fly to our headquarters in Reston, Virginia. I remember the head of PR gave me a binder with all sorts of information about you know the company and and there was a business plan and I looked at it and the plan of record at the time had the company going bankrupt in six months. How Dan Hesse stepped into the aftermath of a catastrophic merger between Sprint and Nextel and saved the company from the brink of bankruptcy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you remember life before cell phones? I remember in the mid-90s when I was backpacking around Eastern Europe, the only way I could talk to my parents was once a week on a payphone. That was it. That was my only lifeline to the rest of the world. But today, of course, practically every single person you know owns a cell phone. And more than three out of four Americans use a smartphone. And because it's such a fixture in our everyday lives, we hardly ever think about the massive industry that pours billions of dollars to make this technology possible or the fact that they wage intense battle over every single subscriber. And a big reason why is because in that industry, there are just a handful of big players. You've got AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. And Sprint actually traces its roots all the way back to the 1860s to the Southern Pacific Railroad. At some point, the railroad got into the telegraph business and started to trace telegraph wire along thousands of miles of railroad tracks. And then in the 1970s, the railroad decided to start using its telegraph lines for long-distance calls. And the acronym SPRINT was born. It actually stands for Southern Pacific Railroad Internal Networking Telephony. So fast forward to the early 2000s and the dawn of widespread access to cell phones and the race for subscribers. And Sprint was in third place, trailing pretty far behind AT&T and Verizon. And then in 2004, the company announced a game-changing move, a merger with number five, Nextel, for $35 billion. Now, this all sounded like the perfect marriage. One company with one combined network and subscriber base. But then nothing went according to plan. 
The merger turned out to be a disastrous move, and by December 2007, Sprint Nextel was months away from bankruptcy. And that's when telecommunications veteran Dan Hesse stepped in as CEO. But Dan actually started his career working for Sprint's arch-rival AT&T back in the mid-70s as an intern. I was uh, in graduate business school, and I needed a really good, solid business internship if I wanted to get a good job when I got out of my, you know, my MBA program. And the best program in the country, leadership internship program, was at AT&T. So I actually asked my older sister to go over to the Harvard Business School and just go into the placement office and just start taking things and send them to me. So I saw this application for, uh, for AT&T, sent it in, and at the time they only interviewed at Wharton and Harvard. So when the recruiter at AT&T saw this resume attached from this kid from Cornell, uh, he was very curious, how the heck did this Cornell kid get a hold of this right. application? So he called me hmm. and I told him, and I asked my sister to go over to Harvard. I figured there would be more opportunities over there. And he loved it. He goes, listen, I'm, there's going to be a plane ticket waiting for you tomorrow morning. I want you to come down and meet me. We're going to interview you. Um, we'd like to take a good look at you. And I ended up getting the internship. So this is 1975. Like, describe what AT&T was like then. People forget what an innovation engine AT&T was back then. I mean, it was founded by an inventor, Alexander Graham Bell. It had like seven Nobel Prize winners at Bell Labs. It was generating multiple patents every single day. It just outcompeted everyone. Yeah, I mean, AT&T was like the top dog, right? This is like, like the equivalent of working for IBM at the time. Oh, yes. It was the most widely held stock. Wow. I think it had the highest market cap in the world. It was, a, it was, a, it was the blue chip of blue chips. And, and you worked your way up, right? I mean, you, you started to get leadership jobs. I did. And uh, one of the great things about the managerial development program at at AT&T was you you would get moved to different jobs every 12 to 24 months uh, to learn a different part of the business because they, as you moved up, they wanted people to really understand the industry and the business. But they wanted to make sure that you understood leadership. So you would work for a boss who was considered a good leader if you were somebody with high potential because that's the best way to learn leadership. You can read all the leadership books you want, but I looked at how, how do they do that? How do they get everybody to want to walk through a wall for them? How do they create great teams? Uh, so I started in the international department with nobody working for me, but then with each successive job, moved into marketing, sales, operations, engineering, strategic planning, wireless and what have you. And by the time I was 31, 32, I had a couple thousand people working for me. Uh, by, the, you know, by the time I was 37, I had 10,000 people working for me. Wow. So I, I guess around 97, you become the, the head, the CEO of AT&T Wireless. That's correct. And this is a, at a time when cell phones were still, you know, predominantly used by business people and people who had money. It wasn't it wasn't like now where everyone had one. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, and was it an article of faith that, that wireless was the future? Uh, as at that time, 1997, was where wireless had traditionally, and the networks that were built were all analog. Uh, and analog in industry parlay is 1G. You know, now people talk about 4G. Yeah. 1G was, was analog. 2G was when we began to go digital. And the acronyms like GSM, 
uh, and CDMA came in, and that's when you could begin to send text messages. So 97 was right at that period where for the first time we were moving to it being more than just voice telephone calls and also becoming more affordable. Up until that time, if you had a cell phone and let's say I'm, I live in Seattle and I'm making a local call, it's A cents a minute. I'm in Seattle, I make a long distance call, it's B cents a minute. I'm traveling to New York, I make a local call, that's C cents a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm in New York, I make a long distance call, that's D cents a minute, extremely complex. And then if I'm roaming, I'm off my carrier's network, it's extremely expensive to make any call. You had no idea what your bill was gonna be until the end of the month. The real power of wireless was to be mobile, but it um, it penalized you for actually taking the phone on the road. Because it was so expensive, you had to use your calling card, go to a pay phone or your hotel. And so in 1998, when I was at AT&T Wireless, we launched this thing called Digital One Rate. How, what, did it, what did it do? You had a bucket of minutes. doesn't matter who you're calling or where you are, whether I'm in my hometown or traveling. It's very simple, and here's your monthly bill. Right. It just, we thought it would do well. It did extraordinarily well. And how much was the, was the rate, by the way? Uh, the cheapest one was 90 bucks a month. It was 90, 120, or 150, depending upon how big your bucket of minutes was. So um, customers crave simplicity. Right. People, you just started signing up customers like, like crazy? Um, we used to say, like, shooting fish in a barrel. Wow. I have lots and lots of friends in the wireless industry. They, when they see me, all of them will, will tell me they remember exactly where they were when they heard about Digital One Rate, when that day we launched it in May of 1998. It was like overnight, we, we just took over the industry. Wow. So you launched this, this thing, this Digital One Rate, which is, which is kind of like hugely disrupts the industry in 1998, and then you left the company? Yes. For me, I just felt the time was right for me to go do something else. Um, also, it was March 2000 when I left. And of course, the um, the stock market, you had the internet stocks doing extremely well. And all these friends of mine had left to do startups, mm. which were worth, of course, a lot of money on paper and, and what have you. And it just looked like an, uh, a new frontier. And I didn't want to look back at the end of my career saying, you know, I really wish I would have tried one of those startups or what have you. So it looked like a fun thing to go do. So I, I decided to leave and go do a startup in, uh, in Seattle, which I did for four years. What, what was a startup? What, what did it do? Um, a company called TerraBeam. And what it did was it manufactured high-capacity wireless equipment phenomenally fast. It was like, it was like fiber speeds. Um, I think we were a little bit ahead of our time. The company did okay. We sold the company four years, you know, after I was there. And, um, you know, we, we made it through that incredible crash when any competitor of ours that was doing anything even remotely like us went out of business. Mm. At least we, we stayed in business. But the demand for that kind of capacity, we were still ahead of our time. So when that startup period ended, you went back into the kind of the traditional telecom industry. You went, you, you joined Sprint. You were brought in as a CEO of one of its one of its companies. Um, what's the story? How did you get back in? Uh, Sprint had just announced its uh, its merger with Nextel, and they were taking it this, the landline division of what had been um, part of Sprint and going to spin it off into a separate public company called Embark, uh, and. Um, so I was hired to be the CEO of Embark. 
Were you essentially integrated into the Sprint family of, of, of business? Well, only for a very short period of time. So I came in um, right before the spin-out, basically to make sure that, I, that the spin-out was done right and well. Uh, and then we would have really nothing to do with one another. Hmm. So I, I did come into Sprint, but moved off into a separate company and was not part of the Sprint family anymore. We were completely on our own uh, and very separate. Two years later, Sprint does tap you to join them as the CEO. So, so essentially, you were moving to a brand new company? Yes, absolutely. Separate board of directors. As a matter of fact, I needed to get the okay. Part of the, the arrangement between the companies when they were split is, they, is the is Sprint could not go and raid Embark, if you will, for people. We were completely separate companies. Of course, Sprint then was a wireless company where Embark was a wireline company. So we were in different businesses, but they knew my history was very much wireless. So I, I, uh, I fit the bill, and just before the end of two, the end of two thousand seven, um, I, I agreed to come back over to Sprint as their CEO. Describe what the <laughs> what the landscape was like at Sprint when you joined in two thousand seven. What had precipitated a new CEO? The Sprint Nextel merger wasn't meeting its objectives. Um, the synergy targets, the earnings targets, and um, there were issues with with the merger. And I knew that was the case and, and had a feel for what needed to be fixed. But uh, I remember the very first day, it's just before Christmas 2007, um, I, I get on the company plane uh, to fly to our headquarters in Reston, Virginia. I remember the head of PR gave me a binder with all sorts of information about, you know, the company and the employees and um, et cetera. And there was a business plan and I looked at it and the plan of record at the time had the company going bankrupt in six months. Wow. This was the business plan for the, the third largest wireless carrier in the country? That was the plan. And usually plans are on the optimistic side. Uh, and so I, I had to have turned white. Did you even have any idea? No. I had, I had no idea it was anywhere even, even approaching that level of seriousness. Just, I'm just trying to imagine the scenario. You are on a plane flying to Reston, Virginia, where you would meet the team, the staff, and address them, and then start to do interviews with press. All the while, in your mind, you knew that you guys were going bankrupt pretty quickly. Well, I didn't know we were. I knew that was the plan. Yeah. And that plan was a plan. And so in my mind, it's I was going to get to the bottom of this and find out why, what, what are the assumptions in there, and how can we fix this because this is unacceptable. Well, what I'm trying to understand is because a CEO is sort of like the chief cheerleader for a company, right? Uh, yes. You've got to sort of show the best side of the company and represent the company and do well by your shareholders, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you addressed the the staff at Sprint, do you remember what you said to them? Yeah, you say you never, you never waste a good crisis. Um, and so the, the rank and file sensed that the company was in deep trouble, but they were energized when the CEO got up there and told it to him very straight about how serious the issues were. You, you, you told them that? I didn't tell them about bankruptcy, um, <laughs> but um, they needed for me to recognize that we were in real trouble, which I did. 
but also confidence that um, we were going to get out of it. As a matter of fact, one of the first things I did, I thought about this fantastic story. Uh, it was a, a documentary called The Endurance about Sir Ernest Shackleton's voyage to the South Pole. Now, this was truly life and death. It is an amazing story of courage, resilience, innovation, leadership, morale building. Um, that's immediately who I thought of. And I went and actually got 100 copies of the DVD and sent it to my top 100 leaders in the company and say and told them, watch this. This is the way we're going to lead, and we're going to make it out of here. When you started to, to dig into why Sprint found itself in this situation, what did you find? One of the things you learn when you look at, at M&A or mergers is mergers of equals almost never work. Hmm. What had happened with Sprint and Nextel is you had the leadership team, you had the executive chairman and the chief financial officer come from Nextel. You had the CEO and the C COO come from Sprint. The rest of the leadership team was just 50-50. The board of directors, 50% from Sprint, 50% from, from Nextel. Uh, you had two headquarters. You made the name Sprint Nextel, but you took the, the Nextel colors, black and gold. It was right down the middle, you know, kind of two cultures in the company. No one was really in charge. There was also another issue with this particular merger. Um, typically, you're able to get all these synergies by combining the networks. The networks are by far the most expensive asset, if you will, that, that a telecom company has. And so sure. um, what they found is that when the companies came together was that the Sprint network, which was kind of CDMA mid-band, and the Nextel network, which was low band, which called IDEN, were totally incompatible. Ooh. There were no network synergies at all. And that was the big number that was supposed to kind of drive the shareholder return for this this merger, and it wasn't there. So let me see if I understand this. Uh, everyone thought that the merger would be a good idea, right? Because if you combine the Sprint and then the Nextel networks, you have a bigger network, and then presumably everyone was, was banking on this to raise shareholder returns. Exactly. So was the merger the key reason why the company was in such bad shape, or, or was it also that Sprint wasn't creating new products, like it wasn't signing up customers, or, or were they all, is, was this all connected? They're all connected. Um, it was largely because the incentive systems and the objectives were about hitting expense targets, and when the expenses couldn't be reduced by taking out network costs, by putting the networks together, they started looking in other places like customer service and customer care. So customer service started declining, so customers began to leave. So you had revenues coming down. But it all comes back to the merger. Because you're essentially merging com two completely different worlds, cultures. Uh, exactly. And everyone in the firm should be on the same page culture-wise because that's the lubricant. It's the how things get done. It's the human embodiment of your brand. And that just didn't exist because with this merger of equals, everyone still identified um, and thought of themselves as either a Sprint person or a Nextel person. No one that I met identified as a Sprint Nextel person. All right. So you are you get there in December of 2007. 
with a six-month plan to go bankrupt, um, a massive scattered company or bureaucracy with two separate cultures, what did you? What was the first thing you did? Well, very importantly, it was to establish what our priorities were going to be. So, number one, improve the customer experience. Right. The customer service declined. The most noticeable way it declined was customers couldn't get somebody to answer their phone call when they called Sprint for service. The hold times were really, really high and customers were abandoning. And after they had done this a few times, they just left. We wanted to get the calls to customer care down because if we could do that, we could answer their calls uh, in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. So I assigned every call that came into customer care for a network issue to the head of network. If somebody was calling because they didn't understand their rate plan or they were on the wrong rate plan, I held sales responsible for getting that number down. I held customer care responsible for repeat calls. That is, if somebody called in and their problem wasn't solved the first time, you're responsible for that. So everybody has an assigned number that they're responsible for getting down. And what happened? The number of calls went away. We also looked at why else are people calling? The number one reason people were calling customer care was some question on their bill. Huh. So going back to my lessons at AT&T, I said, huh, how can we get this number way down? I know. We'll create an unlimited plan where your bill's the same every month. Hmm. If you want what we called simply everything, we were the first in the industry to do it. And this was also when data was also brand new. So you, so the complexity back then is you had your voice charges, you know, for all your voice calls. Yeah. Then you had another thing for your texts. You know, you had your data charges. I said, it's all in. It's 90 bucks. Unlimited data, unlimited text, unlimited calling. Customers loved it and they paid more for it. It was 90 bucks a month. And all those calls also went away. So we closed 30 call centers. And after closing 30 call centers, we were answering the phone a lot faster um, than we were before. We took $2 billion a year out of our customer service costs. Um, It's counterintuitive, but great customer service costs less. It costs much less to provide great service than to provide poor service. Hmm. So when we were number one in the industry, we were winning J.D. Power, number one, American Customer Satisfaction Index, number one in customer satisfaction. We were spending $2 billion less than when we were ranked last in the industry in customer satisfaction, which is where we started. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it does sound counterintuitive that essentially by, by cutting back and cutting down uh, and trying to cut down on the number of calls you actually got higher ratings. But what I, what's not clear to me is how did you, I mean, if somebody needed to call, they're going to call, right? They were going to call customer service. So how do you actually control the number of people calling and how do you prevent that? Well, you, you eliminate the reason for them to call. You, you remove the pain points. Um, the, the key to quality is fixing it at the front end. Make sure it never breaks. So if you have a product that never breaks, mm-hmm. your customer service costs are really low. If you have a product that breaks a lot, your customer service um, calls are many and your costs are high. So this simply everything idea, this plan that would combine all the different costs into just one flat rate, it sounds like that was really motivated by a, a, a necessity to, to, to deal with this customer service crisis. That was a that was a piece of it. 
we viewed it as a market opportunity to differentiate ourselves because also part of the brand was innovation. So we wanted to innovate. We were moving into this new data world. Um, we wanted to, um, you know, stand out because you had these big two, AT&T and Verizon. If we did something really revolutionary, we would stand out. But yes, in addition, uh, we needed to reduce our customer care costs, and this would do it in a big way. This would make a big difference in reducing those costs. So it hit, it kind of hit on all areas. When you took over Sprint, how much money, do you remember how much money it was losing a year or a quarter? Uh, I don't remember the number uh, exactly, uh, but, uh, but in essence, um, the, uh, all the numbers were moving in the wrong, in the wrong direction. So, uh, you were going to hit a point where you were making, not making any income at all. Yeah. And, and more than that, uh, we, uh, we had issues with the banks in terms of, you know, you have to keep, uh, call it certain financial metrics. If you have, if you've borrowed money from the banks and we would be, uh, breaking those covenants. The banks were going to start calling in their loans. Uh, yes where the banks could, in essence, uh, force bankruptcy and take over the company. And presumably, you, you had to make significant cutbacks, right? Absolutely. Substantial ones. Uh, talking to the leadership team and, you know, the, in terms of who wanted to stay with the company over the next two years, knowing that we were going to have to lay off a lot of people, uh, because that's difficult. That is, without question, the most difficult thing a leader has to do and the most difficult thing a CEO has to do. And that was what wore on me the most those first couple of years. And, um, yeah, massive layoffs. How many jobs did you have to cut, ultimately? Well, when I got to Sprint, um, the, the company had about 62,000 employees, 61, 62,000. And uh, within just a few years, we were down to 40,000. Wow. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that, that's hard, right? I mean, of course, it's hardest on the people who lose their jobs. Um, how, do, how do you, as the person who ultimately is like the symbol of this, that they're, a lot of people are, you know, they look to Dan Hesse and they say, he's the guy that fired me. Does that does that weigh on you? Did did that weigh on you? Uh, it it does, but I think that everybody understood that it was necessary. And you, you you are very straightforward with respect to the economics and detailed economics. I took the team through it. Uh, I took everybody through it each quarter, mm. and was very open about why we were doing and what. And they could see, you know, th this is how much expense just had to come out of the company if we were gonna um, if we were gonna pay the bills. Secondly, though, is how you do it. And do you treat people well and with respect? Um, I'm still close to and friends with lots of people that I had to have the tough conversation with hmm. um, that left the business. Uh, and a lot of it is, to, is, the, is, the, is the way you do it. Um, first of all, if, if laying off people is easy for you, you shouldn't be the CEO. But if you can't do it, you shouldn't be the CEO either. Coming up in just a moment, how a series of decisions, both big and small, helped guide Sprint Nextel out of its downward spiral. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. So it's 2009, and Dan Hesse has saved Sprint Nextel from the brink of bankruptcy. But there's still a long road ahead to completely turn the company around and to be competitive in the intense telecom race. Um, I'd say it was about one and a half to two years was what I would call the, the, the bleeding phase. So by the middle of 2008, uh, you know, we were already seeing a lot of the metrics, customer metrics begin to move in a very positive direction. Uh, but uh, we, I guess we ne- almost never feel you're out of the woods. You never, yeah, you never yeah. become complacent. But, but you know, that it was probably, you know, a year and a half or so um, before you started breathing a lot easier. Huh. So, okay, so, so you are clearly starting to see things improve. Um, do, do you remember, was there like one particular turning point? I mean, if I was to pick anything that was the MVP in our, of our turnaround, uh, it was it was culture. I think Peter Drucker says that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and I and I totally believe that. Were you able to kind of merge the cultures, or was that was that just impossible to do? You know, when I got to Sprint, you know, everybody in within the first two or three sentences told me whether they were legacy Sprint or legacy Nextel, hmm. and I knew right right away that was a problem. So in the all employee meeting. I told him, and I said, look, I never want to hear that again. And you can see these smiles because everybody knew that was the case. So the only way that we're going to get out of this predicament is that we're one team. I told the employees of the company, um, 
I'm going to send out what I think are the qualities that are part of the sprint culture, part of the Nextel culture, others that I think are strong because I wanted everybody engaged on being part of defining the kind of company they wanted to work for. I said, what kind of company do you want to work for and what kind of company do you think is going to get through this? Um, we launched what we call the 10 imperatives. I communicated it on every quarterly meeting how we were doing. I measured it, had people actually rate how we were doing at walking the talk. It became a, a very important part of our vernacular. Hmm. And at some point um, during the turnaround, you actually became like the face of the company. Like you literally appeared in a series of commercials, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I remember, I remember those pretty well. Um, they were like pretty simple black and white commercials where, with you like speaking directly to Sprint customers. Yes, I remembered one of the our people asked me, Dan, what do you think about Sprint's commercials? And I was very honest with him. I said, I don't think much of them at all hmm. uh, because there's no clear brand message. At that time, our three competitors had a pretty clear brand message. T-Mobile's was cheap, you know, all about cost. AT&T was iPhone. You know, we're the only one with it. And Verizon was network. Can you hear me now? Hmm. Ours were kind of all over the place. Uh, so I don't, I said, I, I'm, I'm not satisfied with our advertising at all. Well, um, unbeknownst to me, you know, when I'm doing an all-employee meeting, you know, it is broadcast across the country to all of our locations. But watching it live also was our advertising firm uh, in San Francisco. Whoops, <laughs> um, the new CEO doesn't like doesn't like the advertising. So they came from San Francisco to my office in, in Kansas City, and I told them, because of the urgency that we have, um, it takes time to train a new agency. I don't have that time. So I'm going to give you one chance at a new ad campaign that works. We've got to knock it out of the park or I am going to go get somebody else. They come back a week later with the storyboards and they have me in it as doing these TV commercials. And I said, look, no, the, um, if you think you're sucking up to the CEO or what have you, I have no intention of doing TV commercials. That doesn't make any sense. I asked them how many CEO ads, what percentage of them are successful? And they said about one in seven, but six out of seven don't work, but one in seven do work. And when they work, they're grand slams. And so we're swinging with the fences because you told us if we didn't hit a you know, home run and grand slam, we're out of here. Actually, we saw you for the first time on a screen. We think you'll come across on television. So they talked me into doing the first ad. And also I was cheaper than actors or yeah, what sure. have you. I was gonna be in New York anyway. We could get it done. We could cut it very quickly. The ad did extraordinarily well, and I ended up doing ten commercials over four years. What did you say? What did you say to the customers in those ads? I let them know I was the new CEO of Sprint, and it was really about the simplicity of what we were going to bring. Hmm. It resonated, and uh, the brand recall was very strong. 2010, 2011, Sprint's customer base reached an all-time high. It was like 55 million plus uh, users, which is pretty sounds pretty great but of course the iphone really starts to take off at that point i mean that must have been a pretty serious threat to your to your business because it was just with at&t right it was just with at&t but of course smartphones and the iphone in particular became bigger and bigger yeah uh, each year i mean did did you guys see that internally as a threat or did you see that as we got to get we got to figure out a way to get onto this iphone 
Well, um, we wanted to carry the iPhone, um, even though it was extraordinarily expensive to do so. Uh, Apple was, um, you know, they had an exclusive with AT&T and they kept that exclusivity for a long time because, of course, the first version of the iPhones only worked on GSM networks, which AT&T had. Verizon and Sprint had CDMA. They didn't make a version of the iPhone that worked on CDMA, but mm-hmm. when they did... I mean, were there customers who, who were saying to you before you got the iPhones, were there customers saying, look, we're not going to sign up with Sprint because we want an iPhone? Absolutely. Lots of them. Um, lots and lots of customers we knew we lost only because a competitor had the iPhone and we didn't. Right. So I've read that Sprint invested like $20 billion to get into the iPhones over over a four-year period. It was a lot of money, right? It's a huge investment. The number was more like $15 billion. Hmm. It was a big number. Uh, I think over four years we had to buy that. That's how the minimum amount we had to sign up for. So we had to, and that was their way of ensuring that we would be out there selling iPhones aggressively because we had to sell that many. Um, or there would be a penalty because uh, you would make it up over time because the um, the business model with an iPhone that was different than the business model for the other devices is, first of all, you know, back then, customers typically paid $200 to the carrier for a smartphone, whether it was an iPhone or anything else. Mm. But that phone cost us a lot more. That's why there was a two-year contract um, because you were that $200 was really just a down payment. These devices cost anywhere from four to seven hundred dollars with the iphones being more in that 700 range and so you took a bigger subsidy hit as a carrier at the beginning but the customers would stay with you longer and that's where you made your money was at the was at the tail end um the the good news is we easily sold that many iphones i also read that around that time i guess this is 2011 um AT&T made a bid for T-Mobile, um, and it was, it was like announced the day before you and all the big uh, wireless CEOs get on stage together at a trade show, um, and that apparently you were really mad about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's the story behind that? Yeah. Well, I hope the anger didn't come through too much, but I was <laughs> on the stage. I was the, chair, I was the chairman of the CTA, CTIA at the time, and as a matter of fact, I had gotten a call. I was you know, opening the conference on the stage as the kind of the opening keynote speaker. And then we did a panel afterwards with the other CEOs. And just that the night before, I found out that AT&T was making a bid for for T-Mobile. And actually, we had been talking to T-Mobile as well and had hoped to do a a merger with them ourselves because we believed that one made that one made sense. So, yeah, I was uh, I I was on on stage and uh, um, uh yeah, I, I, I wasn't happy, and we decided to fight it. Next, that was part of my remarks, kind of ad libbing, not only at the you know, during the interview, but in my keynote, why I felt it was bad for the industry, and um, nobody believed that we could stop AT and T's acquisition of T Mobile. AT and T had never lost. That's why, when it was announced, our stock—that maybe why I was mad—our stock dropped like a stone. Hmm. And AT&T and Verizon's both went way up because they thought, okay, this is the beginning of the duopoly. Because what will happen is AT&T will buy T-Mobile. Sprint will have no place, nobody to partner with, no place to go. Sprint won't have any alternative but then to get bought by by Verizon, which at the time was the was the largest. Uh, so it wasn't, it was not good for Sprint. And so, yeah, I wasn't happy. And you managed to take that fight to the sort of the bitter end, right? You, you and others prevented that merger. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. So we worked um, very hard to stop that merger from happening. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, a lot of time at the FCC and at the Department of Justice working on um, making sure that didn't happen. So around, I think, 2014, uh, Sprint gets acquired. About about 80% of the company gets acquired by the uh, the Japanese company SoftBank. And then at that point, you decide to leave. You you part ways with Sprint. Um, why? Why did you decide to leave then? Well, usually when somebody comes in and makes an acquisition, they bring in their own CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agreed to stay on for a for a period of time, for a transition period, an undefined transition period. But it made sense for me to leave after the heavy lifting of, we'll call it the, the, the network upgrade to LTE. So the last two years I was there, 2013, 2014, we shut down the, the Nextel network, but we, we also ripped out every nut, bolt, and screw <laughs> from the Clearwire network and the Sprint network to put LTE on all of it. So it was, a, it was, it was tough for us. It's almost what you call the J-curve, where we had been growing subscribers on Sprint at the fastest rate of anybody in the industry. We, had the num- you know, we were number one in customer satisfaction and everything. But we had, if you will, this dog's breakfast of these three different networks that were completely incompatible, the Nextel network, the Sprint network, and the, uh, and, the, and the Clearwire network. So the only way to have a truly great network was to rip it all out completely and start all over with the new 4G network. Mm. And so it was tough from a customer service point of view. We tell our customers, pardon our dust. It's almost like you know, when they're working on the highway, let's say they're gonna make a four lane highway, a 10 lane highway. For a period of time, they're gonna take you down from four lanes to two lanes. That's what we had to do. But then when we were done, you had this big, beautiful network. The rip and replace would be finished around August of 2014. And so that was about the right time to transition. And when you have a, a, an owner of over 80%, they should, you know, they should logically have their, their person in charge. Wait, how did the stock price do over the course of your tenure? Well, um, it was tough at the beginning. When I first came on, of course, because the market didn't know the company was about to go bankrupt in six months either. Um, and the stock dropped very quickly in mm. 2008. You know, I think we exited 2008 at like $1.40 a share, $1.30, something like that per, per share. My last two full years as CEO, Sprint was number one in total shareholder return, assuming, you know, reinvested dividends. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about, about share price and, and its correlation with the business and whether there are just so many things out of your hands, right? How much control do you have over that as CEO? Well, I think the best CEOs uh, don't spend a lot of time focusing on the stock price. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I wouldn't look at it myself because it's a distraction to doing what you want to do, not only business metrics, but over the long term, because there are so many other factors that that go in that go into the stock price. Often there's rumors, and that drives stock price up and down. Uh, there's you know macroeconomic variables, a lot a lot of things. Um, what was important for us was always to do whatever we told. Wall Street, you know, what we were going to do. On rare occasion, I could miss the street consensus because often what they do, what Wall Street does is, let's say you say I'm going to hit two. Um, Their expectation is, well, if he said two, you know, I'm going to expect him to hit 2.5. As the CEO, you shouldn't focus too much on on the stock price. There are too many variables not under your control. Hmm. 
Dan, I, I know uh, you have a family. I, I think you, yeah. you're married. You've got two kids. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine throughout your time at Sprint, and I, I'm sure certainly for those first six months, um, you didn't get to see a lot of them. Uh, it, I did everything I could to spend as much time with them as, uh, as I could. But for my first 90 days, including Saturdays and Sundays, the only two days I didn't work a full day, and I mean a long day, was Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Hmm. Uh, but what I, um, what I decided to do, though, was there were opportunities in this role and in this job uh, to spend high-quality time with each of my two boys and, and my wife as part of my job. My, my older son, for example, very technical, actually graduated in, in computer science a, a year ago. But I went to Silicon Valley a lot. I would take him on the plane with me. Uh, so when I'd be at Google, he'd be getting a tour of Google. Mm. Uh, I'd be at Facebook, he'd be getting a tour of Facebook. My youngest son was really into sports. And, you know, at Sprint, uh, we were involved with NASCAR and the NBA. And I'd have meetings with commissioners and deputy commissioners and team owners and coaches and players, I would take him with me. So because he really was interested in sports and the business of sports, it's something that we shared together. Here in Kansas City, my wife was very into the community, me too, and that was an important part of the job as the CEO of Sprint. So we would co-chair things together, or she would chair that, and I would chair something else, and we would you know, both support each other. We got very involved in the community together. When you look back at your time at Sprint, is there anything you wish you could take back or do over? Hmm. You know, I um, in twenty twenty hindsight, yeah, there are things that you would do differently, um, but that's with information you didn't have at the time. As I look back, I don't think I would have made any decisions differently with the data that I had. What do you think is the most important trait? that a CEO has to have to be successful? Know what you don't know and make sure you have people around you that, that do know. And then related to that is to be a great team builder um, and team motivator. A CEO has to be able to work through others. You can't be, if you will, the, the center. Uh, you have to be willing to, uh, to trust those around you that they work well as a team. What do you think is the key lesson or lessons you learned about leadership from from your time at Sprint? I'd say that, uh, that, that number one is the importance of culture, and particularly a culture that focuses on customers and employees. Um, that's really what, uh, what got the company through the most, it's difficult time. If you're empowered, to take care of the customer and the customer and give great customer service. You like your job uh, a, a lot more. Let's say you're on Southwest Airlines. You can you can tell those people like working at that airline, and that makes you feel more favorably toward that company. Uh, and so, to engage our employees with our customers, we would meet in the cafeteria and write and write these like Jimmy Fallon thank you you know notes to to, to our customers. You know, of, of all lessons, uh, it's it's so important the environment that you want to create that uh, is is the key to moving companies through difficult times, especially difficult times like we faced with, uh, with these significant layoffs and these very serious financial issues. Um, having the team engaged and feeling close to one another as well as close to our customers made a huge difference. 
just one last question for you. Do you think, Dan, that you were uh, that you were born a leader, or do you think that you learned how to become one? I think uh, the latter. I think I learned how to become one. Um, I was I was fortunate that my father was a leader. Uh, he went to West Point. He was a military officer. He led people. Uh, I, I played a lot of team sports, and that was a great education because you learn not only how to be a great team member, but then you you know if you're a captain, how to be a good captain, a coach. What makes a great coach? Who would you do anything, if you will, for? And then working, especially at AT&T, and having these fantastic mentors and people that I worked for and could observe, uh, I learned an awful lot from, uh, from them. So I really don't think leaders are born. I think they're made. That's Dan Hesse. Dan currently serves as chair of the Technology Subcommittee at PNC Financial Services Group. And remember how Dan fought tooth and nail to stop the AT&T and T-Mobile merger? Well, for the past two years, Sprint and T-Mobile have been discussing a new merger. They're still waiting for a decision from the FCC. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top for Built-It Productions and Luminary Media. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.